Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this episode, we consider the final chapter of Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples in John 16. We've already encountered many of the ideas raised in this chapter, so in this podcast, I'll try to take these ideas a little further by fleshing out some practical application. You may recall that Jesus is about to die, and he is giving his disciples a final sermon. As we've seen in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus encourages his disciples to remain steadfast in their faith and to resist the forces of mimetic rivalry. Jesus also comforts his disciples by promising them that he will not leave them as orphans, but he will send the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, to comfort and guide them into all truth. Let's pick up this sermon now from verse 4. I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because of I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will expose the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's unpack what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit's role with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Hebrew parallelism employed in these verses suggests that Jesus is not describing three separate roles which the Holy Spirit performs, but rather he's providing a three-dimensional description of the Spirit's function by viewing it from three different angles. From a mimetic's perspective, sin is engaging in mimetic rivalry. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will expose the mimetic games in which everyone is entangled. In other words, the Holy Spirit will spread the message which Jesus has imparted to his disciples to the rest of the world. Part of this message is the revelation of what true righteousness looks like. And that's the second angle of what the Spirit does. You may recall in podcast 14, we discussed how the religious leaders of Jesus' day were very diligent to keep up the appearance of religious piety, even if it meant persecuting others. Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will expose this sort of behavior for what it is, a mere facade which conceals the underlying rampant mimetic rivalry. By exposing the lie of mimetic rivalry, the Holy Spirit empowers people to choose whether they will remain on the mimetic treadmill or repent from their mimetic rivalry. In John's Gospel, this decision is the judgment which people make for themselves. In a practical sense then, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the unhealthy patterns of mimetic rivalry in our lives, which gives us the opportunity to repent from these patterns. When we do so, we experience the joy of which Jesus speaks. This love and joy often gets clouded out by the hatred and stress generated through mimetic rivalry, stepping 
off the mimetic treadmill and leaving behind this stress and hatred allows us to experience true joy. Reading on now from verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and again because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus is going to be persecuted by the religious authorities and crucified. In the midst of their grief, the disciples will also be persecuted as followers of Jesus. This is the time of darkness of which Jesus speaks and has been warning his disciples all along. Maybe you can emphasize with the way the disciples feel at that point in time. They are grieved, disappointed, scared for their lives. Perhaps you have experienced similar emotions in your life. When you're in that place, it's very dark and lonely. Jesus likens the disciples' experience to giving birth. It's scary, difficult, and painful, but the process brings something new and beautiful into existence. Like the birth of a child, the disciples' sorrow and lament is not futile, but rather it generates new life. Through Jesus' death, the disciples see the scapegoat mechanism in action, and they experience the destructive potential of mimetic rivalry. By undergoing this experience, the disciples become new people as they step off the mimetic treadmill. Resisting the forces of mimetic rivalry, they begin to experience joy, which no persecutor can ever take away from them. In what sense will the disciples not see Jesus and then they will see him again? If we follow the example we've seen in John's Gospel, Jesus heals someone or performs a sign, then he disappears and they're confronted by the religious authorities or some authority figure who tests them and tries them and Jesus is never there. That's the darkness, that's the hard part, that's the difficult thing and it feels dark and lonely, it feels like you're on your own. And that's what the disciples are gonna be like. They won't see Jesus in that place. It'll feel lonely, dark, and scary. But then the next part in the pattern 
is the persecution passes, the person emerges into their new life, and then Jesus appears. After they've usually been kicked out of their religious community, like the blind man in John chapter 9, it's only once he's expelled or excommunicated from the synagogue that he comes out and he sees Jesus. The disciples are going to experience something similar. Much like the man in John chapter 9 who goes through this lonely, dark period of persecution and questioning and then emerges out the other side with his sight, he sees like he's never seen before, he's got a new life, and Jesus confronts him then and then he gets a new revelation of who Jesus is. He gets told, Jesus tells him, I am the son of man, and the man can then follow Jesus because now he knows who Jesus is. Jesus' character has been revealed. So the disciples are going to go through something similar. They're going to go through this dark, painful period of loneliness where Jesus appears to be absent at his death. And they're going to struggle with where they go. They're going to lack direction. They're going to be lost. They're going to feel helpless, abandoned. But they'll come through that period and they'll emerge out the other side with a wonderful new life. The irony of it is going through that period of not seeing Jesus, they will see him like they've never seen him before. Jesus is talking in this passage about being glorified, about being revealed, his true character and the true character of God being revealed at the cross. And it's only through the cross, through that dark road, which the disciples have to walk, that they'll emerge from the other side to see Jesus like they've never seen him before. For once, they'll realize and see who Jesus truly is. Let's take a bit of time now to consider how we ourselves might resist the forces of mimetic rivalry in our own lives. First, we need to be aware of the mimetic patterns in our lives. We can't combat them or stand against them if we're unaware of them. And this is the lie of mimetic rivalry. This is the idea of sin and the deceptive nature of sin, the ruler of the world, is that we're totally blind to what's going on. So the first thing we need to do is to see these processes. And one way to start to look and examine ourselves is to ask ourselves, what is it that I desire most? We can pay attention to these desires which we've entertained and when we see that these inevitably are going to fail us in that they'll never make us happy, they'll never make us complete, then we can start to let go of those desires. Perhaps we catch ourselves flitting from one pursuit or desire to the next, hoping that this time it'll fulfill me. This time, maybe this thing will be the thing that I've been looking for all my life. Once we recognize that pattern in our own lives and we can recognize ourselves doing that, then we can realize the futility of the whole exercise. Only then can we start resisting those patterns of behavior in which we're engaged. Second, you can ask yourself if there's resentment, hatred, or malice in your life. If we dig deep enough, we'll find that these emotions are conceived through mimetic rivalry with others. We might harbor resentment, 
hatred and malice towards someone who has deprived us of our desired object. Perhaps they took it from us, or maybe we failed to take it from them. In any way, we're engaged with these people in mimetic rivalry as we strive for the same object. And that person then becomes an obstacle to our own happiness. At least that's how we perceive them. We no longer look at them as a person in their own right, with feelings and emotions like ours, all they become to us is a roadblock which is there to stop us being happy and complete. Now, of course, that's not true because those things which we're striving and straining for will never make us complete. In fact, we only want them in the first place because we see that that other person has them or at least that that other person desires them. So we imitate their desire for those objects and we get in locked in mimetic rivalry with these people. Once we see this process in our own lives, we can begin to put these desires aside and we can start to forgive those people whom we carry these bad emotions, these negative feelings towards. We might feel anger, malice, hatred, resentment towards them but once we realize that those feelings are just a product of mimetic rivalry and that the thing we're after isn't going to make us complete anyway, then we can start to forgive those people. And as we do so, we begin to experience the love and joy of which Jesus speaks. Third, recognizing that emotions such as anger and malice deprive us of love and joy actively seeking to take control of our thoughts and emotions becomes very important. The cognitive sciences teach us that most humans have this inherent bias towards negative thoughts and emotions. Fear and anxiety appear almost pandemic in our world. Although these emotions once played an important role in protecting us from many dangerous predators, such as hungry lions and tigers, they seem less helpful in our modern world. We know that while negative thoughts lead to negative emotions, positive thoughts generate positive emotions. If we want to pursue positive emotions such as love and joy, then we need to actively think positive thoughts while rejecting negative thoughts. But I remember the first time I visited a counsellor and they explained something like this to me. And then they said, okay, now I want you to go home and I want you to keep track of your personal thoughts and emotions. And I tell you, I didn't know where to start. I'm getting better at it now. But looking back, I think the internal chatter inside my own mind was so intense and chaotic that I found it difficult to know, let alone describe any of my thoughts or feelings. Over time, I've discovered various techniques for taking back some control over my own mind. I've found practices such as meditation and contemplation very helpful for focusing my mind and learning to reject certain negative thoughts while dwelling upon more positive thoughts and emotions. Practices such as these became very important in the more monastic branches of the early church, probably because they helped people experience love and joy. To use some of the images we've already encountered in John's Gospel, you might like to think of meditation as reconnecting to Jesus, the true vine, and drawing nourishment from God. Or another image comes from John chapter 3, verse 8, which reads, 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, if you look carefully at your Bible, there might be a footnote attached to this verse which says that the words translated spirit and wind are actually the same word in the original Greek text. That's the word pneuma, from which we get our words like pneumatic, the idea that you put air into a tire. That comes from this word pneuma, which can mean wind or spirit. So while it's not immediate obvious from the English translation, Jesus likens the action of the Spirit to a breeze, and he kind of muddles the words together in this verse so that you don't know whether he's talking about breeze or Spirit. And we can see this idea elsewhere in the Bible. For example, in the Exodus story, when Moses parts the waters, we're told that a great wind, which could also be translated as Spirit, this wind or spirit blew the water into two towering columns, leaving a dry path in between. Drawing upon this idea, you might like to visualize breathing in the Holy Spirit with each breath you take. So there's three practices you can implement to cultivate love and joy in your own life. One, repent from those desires which threaten to consume us. Two, repent from those negative emotions we harbor towards others. And three, spend time in meditation or contemplation to gain more awareness and control over our thoughts. Now let's finish up the podcast by reading together the remainder of chapter 16. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that everything you know and you don't need anyone to ask you questions this is why we believe that you came from god jesus answered them do you now believe behold the hour is coming and indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone yet i'm not alone for the father is with me i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.